Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks Deconstructing Books That Wrecked Us. As children, we are taught to listen to adults and other authorities. But adults teach us very different things, and we end up trying to operate on very different messages. The older we get, the more those conflicting messages begin piling up until we no longer know what is right or true. Deconstruction is the picking apart of these various messages to understand which ones work for us and which ones don't. In this podcast, I will deconstruct some of the most popular books in Christianity to determine which ones have harmful messages and what those messages are, so you can decide for yourself which ones are worth keeping and which can be thrown away. Okay, um, one of the big problems with Christianity and uh, possibly evangelical Christianity in particular is that there is a pretty huge disconnect between the Old Testament God and Jesus. And yet, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. Okay, and so what ends up happening, and this is one of the big problems with cherry picking, you know, you just take one verse that communicates a concept that you approve of or you agree with, and then you use that one verse to sort of back up your premise. This is what Emerson Egrix did in Love and Respect, is he picked this one verse out of Galatians about, you know, men loving their wives and women respecting their husbands. And then he wrote like an entire book, this entire philosophy, uh, basically based on this one verse. And yet when you hold that verse up to the rest of scripture, to the ministry of Jesus, to how Jesus treated women, to Jesus's relationship with women, it doesn't hold up. And so anytime you're reading these Christian books or anytime you hear a sermon or a, a pastor You always have to hold up sort of this kernel or this nugget that they're trying to uh, push on you. You have to hold it up to the entirety of the Bible. The uh, The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What I find and what I believe is that what's happened is evangelical Christianity has tre- has created this very angry Old Testament God that hates everybody. And then nice, sweet Jesus came along and died on a cross to save us from his father, to save us from the wrath of his father. And then what uh, evangelicals have done is they've made themselves the gatekeepers. And they're not actually the first. Uh, I should say Christianity in general, this is what they've done, is they've made themselves the gatekeepers. They have made themselves, uh, what they're selling is Jesus. What they're selling is, uh, you know, redemption, salvation. But but what they communicate is that they control it. They decide who gets in, who doesn't. It was, I think it was Anne Lamott that said, uh, We have successfully created God in our own image when he hates all the same people we do. And this is something you have to be really careful of in books, in sermons, is they create a very inconsistent image of God. Uh, This is where cognitive dissonance comes in, is because... There is, there is one God. There is only one God. And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And yet, when you read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament, when you look at the, the God of the Old Testament and then you look at Jesus, they see, there seems to be this huge discrepancy between them. This is why, you know, reading the Bible from start to finish at least once, maybe twice, a few times, it's very important to 
to go from Genesis to Revelation to understand and recognize that God has not changed. God does not change. God's will has not changed. God's, you know, purpose, his, his, uh, it, it hasn't changed. But the other thing that you have to also understand is that God has a much, much, much greater viewpoint than we have. What happens to us is we look at things in terms of what happens this month or what happens this year. Um, God is looking at a timeline of thousands of years. And it doesn't mean that what happens to us individually each day doesn't matter. What it does mean is that God is looking, like even in terms of our lives, God is looking at decades, not days. So, so many times what happens is something can happen to us. We, we, we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and we feel like God doesn't answer that prayer or God didn't answer that prayer in that moment. And a lot of times what ends up happening is you don't find out for 10 or 15 or 20 years that God actually did answer that prayer in that moment. It just doesn't look like we expect it to. And so we assume that God isn't there or God isn't out there. Okay. So the, the one, the one thing, if you can take any one thing from this book, uh, he says it in the, in the second chapter, he says, God is for you. And this is the one thing that I absolutely, positively, unequivocally agree with Mark Batterson about is God is for you. And so when things do not work out the way you think they should, when you pray for a very specific answer, and it does not happen exactly the way you pray for it. It does not mean that God is against you or that God hates you or that God isn't listening or that God isn't out there. It doesn't mean any of those things. All it means is that God operates on a very, very, very different timeline than we do. And for me personally, the one thing that I think is so important to always cling to no matter what happens is this idea or this belief that God is for you. That's it. That's all. Okay. But what happens so many times is we listen to people like Mark Batterson and that's what gets us in trouble so many times. It's it's listening to people like Mark Batterson that actually leads us to this idea that God must be against us, okay? So let's recap a little bit. Let's talk about like the first couple of chapters and what Mark Batterson did. First of all, he talks about how he tried to seed plant a church when he was 22 years old. Okay, that's ridiculous. The Bible is a book that for centuries has given people in the absolute darkest places hope, okay? One of the things that I always find really interesting is that the exact same book that white people used to justify slavery is the exact same book that gave 
those exact same slaves incredible hope. So it's not the book that is the problem. It is who is interpreting the book and how are you interpreting the book? Because white people took the Bible and used it as an excuse to enslave God's children. And those same children found enormous hope. They found the hope in that same book to continue to carry on in absolutely unfathomable circumstances. Okay, so it's not the book. It's who are you listening to? Who is translating that book? Who is interpreting that book? Because in black hands, it is a book of enormous hope. In white hands, it is a tool of empire. And that's not automatic across the board. It, there, there's plenty of white hands that it has become a book of hope in. And there's, there's, I'm sure there's black hands that it's become a tool of empire in the same way. Okay, so it's not um, automatic. But but again, the bottom line is it's not about the book. It's about who is translating the book, who is interpreting the book. And this is what you always have to be very careful of is because just because someone is a Christian, just because someone is a pastor, just because someone has a big platform does not mean that they are properly and appropriately interpreting the book. You know, he talked about how he went out and did a like a four mile loop around all these areas in Washington, D.C. And he's like, you know, little did I know that would become the coffee house that we opened. And little did I know that that would become our eighth location. So he got this idea from Joshua because Joshua, because God told Joshua to go out and um, walk the land and, and God would give Joshua sort of all the land that was there. Okay. The difference between Joshua and Mark Batterson is that when Joshua went out and walked land, there probably wasn't anyone already living on that land. And this is what is called colonization. And this is very deeply buried in white European DNA, right? It's it's how we established this country in the first place. We just kind of went in and went, uh, we believe that God has given us this land and we went in and took it. That's how we, you know, that's how America was colonized in the first place. So here's Mark Batterson, uh, 250 years later, goes into Washington, D.C., where I'm sure there's already plenty of churches. There's probably people already doing things in those neighborhoods. And he does a four-mile prayer walk and goes, I've decided God is giving this to me. So yes, he does proceed to build nine churches, but how many other churches and how many other ministries did he end up knocking out or from all intents and purposes, just basically stealing people from those other congregations? This idea that we're successful and we we prove that it's of God because we have nine congregations, that's pretty similar to saying, well, America's very prosperous. So that means that God did indeed intend for us to come and take this land from other people. Having a lot of wealth or having a lot of success does not equate it's God's will. We really need to get out of this mindset that just because a ministry or a person or an organization is wealthy, it means that 
obviously God is with them or God blessed them or God made them prosperous because it was God's will for them to do that. Sex traffickers are usually pretty wealthy. Drug dealers, people that profit off of other people's addictions, um, alcohol companies, anything that you can sell people that they become addicted to, gambling. Uh, all these people that sell these things are all very wealthy. But I would personally argue that that does not mean that they're within God's will or it's because God has blessed them because they're they're doing God's will. There's so many problems with religion in America and America in general, but I think this is probably one of the really big ones is we be, we have developed this idea that if something is rich or wealthy or prosperous, that clearly means that God has blessed it or it's within God's will. And I don't, I think nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, the Bible teaches us that, that some of the most blessed of God were often the poorest. So again, when you, when you're reading these, these, you know, boom, chicka, rah, rah, Christian books that are all about, you know, God wants you to have this and God wants you to have that and God wants you to be prosperous. What can end up happening is that it makes you feel as if somehow you're out of God's will if you're not prosperous. And then that's kind of what they, re that's what they tell you. Well, obviously, if you're not prosperous, it means you're just not praying hard enough or you're just not in God's will. And a lot of times what it means is you're just not willing to exploit other people for your own benefit. Because in many cases, the people that are the most prosperous or the people that have the big mega churches, they came in and they built them and they, for all intents and purposes, stole congregations away from five or eight or 10 other smaller churches to build their great big giant uh, congregations. So might makes right is not actually biblical. Uh, wealth proves that we're doing things right or wealth proves that God has blessed us is not actually biblical. None of these things are biblical. So one of what Patterson says here is he says that um, he's going to talk about Jericho, but he says, you've got to define the promises God wants you to stake claim to, the miracles God wants you to believe for, and the dreams God wants you to pursue. Okay, very few people in the Bible prayed for what God gave them or the role that God called them to, okay? Uh, Joseph did not pray to be sold into slavery. Joseph did not pray to be thrown in a dungeon for, I think, seven years. Uh, Daniel did not pray to be thrown into a lion's den. <laughs> Most of what happens in the Bible, these men were not praying for these things. They didn't, they didn't, uh, Jonah did not pray to be sent to Nineveh or pray to be thrown into the belly of a whale. None of these things that happened to these men, they, they didn't pray for these things. OK, um, and in a lot of cases, they they fought against it. They were like, uh, I don't think so. Like, I'm good here. I'm comfortable. Thank you very much. Uh, they, they didn't actually want to go to the places where God was calling them to go. That that's pretty much the overarching story of the Bible is people not really wanting to go where God was calling them to go. And in many, many, many cases, when they did go where God was calling them to go, it wasn't very pleasant. Okay. But the thing that you always have to keep in mind is God has a much bigger vision. So Mark Batterson is going to talk about Jericho and he's going to talk about, you know, God delivering Jericho to the Israelites. But you can't start the story there. 
you have to actually go all the way back to the beginning. Because if all you focus on is the miracle, you forget the decades leading up to that. So you have Moses. Moses was born under a pharaoh that was killing all of the Hebrew babies because they were proliferating too fast, essentially. He was trying to cut down the population of Hebrews. So uh, Moses got taken in by the Pharaoh's daughter, right? So Moses was actually raised as royalty. And then he ended up killing a guard and he ended up having to run out into the desert. And then God comes and says, I want you to actually go back to Pharaoh. And I want you to uh, tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And there's a really important lesson here too, is that a lot of times we feel called of God to, to go somewhere or do something or tell somebody something, right? And we we mistakenly believe, and this is why it's so important to go back to the beginning, and it's important to look at the whole entire story arc, not just the very end when the good thing happened, right? Because we all do this. We have this tendency to believe God sent me so God will pave the way and make everything great. So um, Moses does end up going back to talk to Pharaoh, and immediately what happens? The Bible tells us that God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Instead of paving the way for Moses and saying, hey, Moses, just go tell Pharaoh I want him to let my people go and I'll make everything come out happy, smooth, and hunky-dory, the complete opposite happened. Um, Pharaoh started actually coming down on the Hebrews and the Hebrews started telling Moses to shut the hell up. Because Pharaoh actually made their life even harder than it was before, okay? God didn't pave the way and it make everything sunshine and roses. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and made life even worse on the Hebrews. That was the first thing that came. That was the first thing that happened. And then what happened? God sent all the, the, the plagues, right? It was horrific. That's the part that you have to pay attention to. And so finally, Moses leads them out of Egypt, right? And what happens? The, the, the Pharaoh sends his armies after him. And what ends up happening again and again and again? What happens to the Israelites? They want to go back. Okay, They want to go back into slavery. So what does God do? God spends 40 years, 40 years teaching them a new way to live, a new rhythm and a new pace. What did he do? He sent manna. And what happened? Every day for six days, they had to get up. And what do they do? They just, all, the only thing they had to do every day, they had to go out. They had to pick enough manna for that day, right? And overnight, the manna would go bad. So they couldn't, you couldn't go out and pick enough for two days or three days. Every single day, you had to get up. You had to go out. You had to get your manna. That was it. That's all you had to do. And then 2,000 years later, what does Jesus say? The Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread just for today. Do I have enough to eat just for today? This is the pace that God spent 40 years instilling in the Israelites. Get up, get your bread for the day. You're good. Enjoy the rest of your day. Go fishing. Do whatever you want. Get up, get your daily bread, Spend the rest of your day however you want. And then you do that for six days. And then what happens? On the sixth day, you get enough for two days, right? So that the seventh day, you take a day of rest. You So six days, you get up, you go out, you get your daily bread, 
you spend the rest of your day however you want to do it and then on the sixth day you get enough for two days and you take a day of rest for 40 years this is the pattern that God instilled and none of the none of the Hebrews that actually were delivered from Egypt none of them ever saw the promised land right it took an entire generation God let an entire generation grow up free of captivity before he took them into the promised land okay but if you just start with Jericho if you only look at the miracle of Jericho you completely overlook the 50 60 70 years that went before that right from all the way from the birth of Moses God had already planned Jericho even before Moses was born before Moses was born God had already planned out Jericho so you cannot if you want to look at how God moves and how God operates and kind of like what to expect you can't just start with Jericho but that's where Mark Batterson starts he's like hey look let's take a look at Jericho this is what God did in Jericho but if, if all you do is look at Jericho, it's not going to be very hopeful because it gives the impression that you just wake up tomorrow and God delivers Jericho. That's not how God works. That's never how God has worked. But let's talk about Jericho for a minute because here's something that I find like really interesting and really fascinating is that, you know, there's a lot of people that think that science and the Bible are, you know, contradictory. And that, that's a whole other like podcast by itself. But one of the things that I want to talk about is how the way that God delivered Jericho is actually very scientific. And one of the things that we know now that they didn't know 4,000 years ago is that sound waves have actual sort of like force and power, right? If you put a like a piece of glass in front of a really powerful speaker, the speaker will break the glass because sound waves have actual force. And then the other thing that God knew that they didn't know scientifically back then is that when you send uh, 60,000 people marching, like with with heavy armor, when you send 60,000 people marching, and actually I think it was more, I think the soldiers I think there were 60,000 soldiers. But when you send, you know, soldiers and heavy uh, equipment around in a circle, every time they walk around the city, they're stomping, bump, 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 right? It's shaking. It's literally shaking the ground. For, and then the other thing, what are we also talking about? We're also talking about gravity, right? Gravitational pull. So, you walk around the city and you shake the ground. Bam, 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 bam. And what happens? Gravity starts to do its work. And the more you march, the more it, you start to shake those rocks, right? And they move. They start to move out of alignment with each other. You're creating a little earthquake. So you do that every day for seven days. You let gravity do its work. And then on the seventh day, what do you do? You walk around it seven times with all of this like heavy artillery. Then you... Uh, shout and blow trumpets at it and what do we know about sound sound has actual sound waves so I think it would be fair to say God used science to bring down the walls of Jericho because God already knew about 
sound waves. And God knew about seismic interruptions. Seismic is, you know, earthquakes, right? God knew all about that. God knew what would bring that wall down. But here's the other thing. Is it any less of a miracle because you can explain it and what happened with science? Because they didn't know. They didn't know that that sound waves actually have power in and of themselves. They don't know about seismic eruptions. So it's, in my book, it's still a miracle, but it's also scientific. So for me personally, I don't think that science and the Bible are opposed to each other. It's all about how we approach science. Are we approaching it from a perspective of God has set things in motion in a certain way and our job or our sort of best role is to find out, is to figure out how do we best fit in with the way that God has designed things to be or do we approach it from we know better than God and so our goal is to try and control nature or control, we want to bend and shape the world around us according to our will. Um, Here's one example of that from my own life. And and I think a lot of people have figured this out. You know, there's a lot of people that don't understand daylight savings time. And these are people that are, that are governed by a clock. They live their lives by the clock. For thousands of years, we didn't have clocks. We didn't live our lives by the clock. We lived our lives by the sun, right? It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Sun comes up, you get up. Sun goes down, you go to bed. And for, for most of history, people have lived their lives by the sun. But then man and his great technology came in and wants to try and control time. So now instead of getting up when the sun comes up, we get up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 5 a.m. Our bodies do not sync with a clock. Our bodies literally sync with the sun and with the moon. This is our attempt to control nature rather than fitting in with the way nature works. Um, California recently passed, I don't know if it's the state of California or just like a school district within California, but they recently passed a law that schools aren't legally allowed to start before a certain time because they find out that kids aren't getting adequate sleep because (laughs) your body does not sink to a clock. Your body sinks to nature. It's just the way it works and you can fight it, but you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. You know, people that work at night, especially over long periods of time, they have really significant health issues over over time because our bodies are not thousands of years. Our bodies have been synced to the sun and the moon. And then all of a sudden man uh, develops a clock. Man, you know, breaks time down into, you know, 24 hours increments an increment of an hour 24 hours in a day right and all of a sudden we're trying to sync everyone to a clock instead of the sun and it's causing a lot of health problems so again it's not that science is opposed to the bible but it's more about do we study science from a perspective of trying to figure out how do we work best within parameters that you know god the universe nature whatever you want to call it i don't care but there is a way that we work best that we function best and it is it is in sync 
with nature, not fighting against nature. So you can always tell all the people that you can tell who's in sync with the clock and who's in sync with nature. Because the people that are in sync with nature fully understand exactly why we have daylight savings time. People that sync themselves to a clock, people that try and control time with a clock, you can always tell because they complain about daylight savings time. Clocks are our attempt to control nature as opposed to working with nature. Because if we worked with nature, we would go to bed when the sun goes down and we would get up when the sun comes up. But we don't do that. And then we can't figure out why we're so miserable. But going back to uh, the circle makers, none of the people that actually went into Jericho had been slaves in Egypt. I think it's a pretty fair guess that the slaves in Egypt were probably praying for deliverance every time uh, one of them died from exhaustion or every time one of their babies was killed by the Egyptians. I'm sure they prayed for deliverance from the Egyptians. But what you have to understand is they did see deliverance from the Egyptians, but none of them actually made it to the promised land. Their children and grandchildren made it to the promised land. Okay, do you remember I talked about last week about how uh, Mark Batterson talks about his grandfather. His grandfather prayed for him. Right. He talked about how his grandfather uh, wore a hearing aid. And so even though his grandfather couldn't hear anything, all of his grandchildren, all the people in his house, uh, you know, heard the grandfather praying. And he says, there have been moments in my life when the spirit of God has whispered to my spirit, Mark, the prayers of your grandfather are being answered in your life right now. Okay, so this is the thing that we have to always be really careful is when we read these, you know, big rah-rah books, you can do it if you just pray hard enough for it. It's not necessarily all about you. It may not be you that actually receives the blessing of your prayers. It may be your grandchildren. So even though you pray a prayer, and you don't see an immediate answer does not mean that God is not working. It does not mean that God is not moving. It doesn't mean that you're not praying hard enough. It simply means that God does not move on our timeline. God is for you. If there is any one thing that I would hope that people could come to know and to grasp and to believe, to believe deeply to the very bottom, to the depths of their soul. It is simply this. God is for you. So I do think that it is actually important that we pray. I think it is important for us to pray for what we want and to know what we want and to pray for that. But I think that we, we quit too easily or we give up too easily or we listen to these pastors, you know, kind of like Mark Batterson saying, if it's not happening today, you're just not praying hard enough. I don't think that's true. 
God hears every single solitary last one of our prayers. He hears the prayers we don't even know that we're necessarily praying. Okay? God hears them. God answers them. God is for you. But we need to stop listening to the the big rah-rah pastors that only focus on the answer, the solution, the outcome, the answer to the prayer. Because the answer to the Israelites' prayer took a good 80 years and the people that prayed the prayers never actually saw the answer to the prayer, which was Jericho, the promised land. They never saw the promised land. The people that prayed the prayers, the the slaves in Egypt never saw the promised land. The slaves in Egypt prayed for delivery, but it was their grandchildren, it was their children and grandchildren that actually saw the promised land. Okay? Um, One of the things that I find really interesting about this book is that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in this book. He'll say one thing and then he'll give examples of something totally different. For instance, he went out and he did a very specific prayer walk, right? He walked four miles around uh, Capitol Hill and in his mind, he believed that God was going to give him that land, right? Land that there were lots of other churches already on, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I think is really important, he tells the story of these parents, Wayne and Diane. And as soon as Diane began or got pregnant, they began praying for their baby. They didn't even know if it would be a boy or a girl. They just started praying for their baby. Good so far. Nothing wrong with praying, praying for their babies. I think it's a good idea to pray for your baby. Okay, so before the baby's ever even born, before they know the sex of the baby, they start praying for their baby. Okay, and in October, it says that the Lord gave them a girl's name to start praying for. So they started praying for Jessica. So that's in October, right? They started praying for Jessica. And then uh, in December they felt like God was giving them a boy's name. So in December, they started praying for Timothy. So October, they started praying for Jessica. In December, they start praying for Timothy. So when they got the name Jessica, they assumed that was what they needed to name their baby girl. They assumed they were going to have a girl and they assumed they needed to name their baby girl Jessica, right? But in December, so a couple months later, they hear this this boy's name, Timothy, and so they're like, okay, so, you know, they're confused. They don't, are we having twins? Or like, what, you know, what does this mean? This is, this is the point. They don't know what it means. They just sort of receive these two names and they just start praying for these two names. They don't know what they're praying for. They don't know what it's about. They just, they, they just sort of sense these two names. They start praying for these two names, right? Lo and behold, they have a boy. They're like, okay, so they name their son Timothy, right? So they don't know what, what Jessica was about, but they just keep praying over Jessica. So they pray for Jessica and Timothy. And lo and behold, about 20 years later, Timothy marries a girl named Jessica that was born in October of the year they started praying for their baby. Okay? 
So this is this is very different from what Mark Batterson tells us. Mark Batterson tells us that you have to define the promises God wants you to stake claim to, the miracle God wants you to believe for, and the dreams God wants you to pursue. What he's implying with this, and the same thing with his prayer walk, what he's implying with this is that it's up for you to decide what you want God to give you. Okay, but that's totally opposite from what uh, Wayne and Diane did, right? Wayne and Diane just started praying for their baby, just in general praying for their baby. God gave them the names Timothy and Jessica, and so they prayed for the names that God gave them, but, but they didn't know who Jessica was. They didn't know, you know, obviously when Timothy was born, they kind of put two and two together and went, okay, well, you know, maybe we're supposed to name our son Timothy. Maybe this is the Timothy that we've been praying for. So they named their son Timothy and they kept right on praying for Timothy, the, the, the prayers that God gave them, right? But they didn't know, they had no idea what they were actually praying for. This is the difference between Mark Batterson saying, and I've read so many of these, you know, these prayer books, all these like, you have to be very specific. You have to know exactly what you're praying for. You, have to, I don't think that's true. And part of the reason I don't think that's true is the ultimate example of prayer that we should always be looking at is what? The Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray. What did he say? What did Jesus pray? He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Not my name. It's not about me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Okay? That's very different from what Mark Batterson is leading people to pray, which is you have to decide what you want and then start praying for that. And you have to be specific about what you want and start praying for that. And how does Jesus teach us to pray? Jesus says, your will be done. Okay, I would say that Wayne and Diane prayed very appropriately. They started praying for their baby. Your will be done. Then they got this name, Jessica, Timothy. They don't know what that means, but they just start praying for Jessica and Timothy. And 20 years later, their son Timothy marries Jessica, who was born right when they started praying for Jessica. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what it meant, right? And when you don't understand what you're praying for and you don't know what it means, you don't really have any choice but to say, your will be done. Your will be done for Jessica and Timothy. We don't understand. Okay. Um, and what else does Jesus say? Remember the manna? They had to go out every day. They had to go out. They had to get the manna. They, they had to gather what they needed for that day. And if they tried to gather more, what happened? It, it like went rotten overnight. Okay, I think it was like the locust ate it. I don't remember exactly what happened to it, but they couldn't gather more than they needed for one day. The next day, uh, it would be bad. They had to go back out every day for 40 years. This is the rhythm that God set in front of them. And what does Jesus tell, how does Jesus tell us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Period. Give us this day our daily bread. Just today. That's all we have. That's all we know that we have. How many of us go out spending our lives 
working, 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 working. To do what? To get ahead. Get ahead of what? Get ahead of whom? Who are we trying to get ahead of? And what does that, what does that usually mean? If you're trying to get ahead, you're trying to get ahead of someone else. And how do you do that? Usually the way you get ahead of someone else is by exploiting someone else. That's capitalism, right? Capitalism is you find a way to capitalize on a situation so that you get the better end of the deal. The goal of capitalism is I get more from you than I give you. That's capitalism. And that is what we end up applying to all of our relationships. That's how we, we, we take a very capitalistic approach to life. We don't, we don't engage in like the barter system where our goal is to make sure that we both walk away happy with what we've gotten. I give you something of equal value to what you give me. That's bartering. That's not capitalism. Capitalism is how do I capitalize on this situation so that I walk away with more than you do. You give me more than I give you. I get from you more than I give you. In my personal opinion, it's not biblical. What the Bible tells us, how Jesus tells us to pray is give us this day our daily bread. That's all we need to worry about is today. Not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, not 100 years from now. Just today. And it doesn't mean that you can't be praying for tomorrow or, or five years from now or 10 years from now or your grandchildren or your children. Of course you can pray for them. But we always have to be careful. Who are we praying? Whose will are we praying? Are we praying my will be done or are we praying thy will be done? I always tell people, I'm like, you don't want me to pray for you. Because I see this like on social media all the time. People are like, pray that this happens or pray that that happens or pray that you know, pray that the doctors do this or pray that, and I'm like, I'm not going to pray that. I'm, the, what I will pray is I will pray for you that you have the strength to accept God's will, whatever that may be. That's how I pray. And, and by the way, that's how I pray for myself too. Not my will, but thine. Be, I know what I want. I do. But, but as I talked about in the first episode about counting the cost, what I also know, I don't necessarily trust my own wisdom. I don't think that my will for my life is greater than God's will for my life. So it doesn't mean that there aren't times when I don't pray for certain things. I do. I'm human. But I also sort of what you might call pray carefully because I also acknowledge and recognize that my will, that, you know, I don't know what all the options are. I can only pray for one thing, okay? It's like if, if the only thing that you know, if the only food that you've ever heard of is hamburgers, you're going to pray for hamburgers every day. There's a whole world of food out there that you're not even aware of. So if you set, so it's, it, the way I look at it, it's like if you pray for hamburgers every single day, God will give you hamburgers every single day. But there's a whole world of food out there that you might be missing out on because you're praying for hamburgers every single day. So what I recognize is that God is aware of so many options that I'm not aware of. So of course there's certain things that I pray for, 
but I also pray God's will be done. I also pray that God will give me the grace and the strength to um, accept his will and to see if things don't work out the way that I want them to or the, the way that I think they should. It doesn't mean that they're not working out exactly the way God intends them to because a lot of times God has a promised land he wants to take us to but he has to get us out of Egypt first and just remember when the, as soon as the, the the Hebrews as soon as the Hebrews uh, encountered hardship or difficulty what happened they wanted to go back to what was familiar they actually wanted to go back into slavery as soon as they experienced hardship as soon as they got scared or as soon as uh you know things looked hopeless they wanted to go back into slavery and I think we all kind of do that same thing you know God is trying to get us out of the hood or the ghetto or out of one or another kind of slavery but slavery is all we know and so when things are uncertain or they're hard or we see obstacles we try to go back to slavery like whatever that may be um a a really bad relation like how many women get out of really bad relationships but then they get lonely or they have a hard time making ends meet and they just want to go back into their really horrid abusive relationship we do that all the time god is constantly trying to move us to a promised land but we're constantly trying to go back into slavery and so we need to be really careful about books like this that only focus on the promised land and not all of the many, 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 many obstacles that the Hebrews faced in actually getting to the promised land. God had to totally rewire their brains for freedom versus slavery. So that they wouldn't want to keep going back into slavery. And the same thing is true of us. Before God can deliver us to our promised land, he has to unwire us like to accept slavery over freedom. Okay? So just because your prayers aren't being answered today or they might not be answered tomorrow, just because things actually look a lot worse than when you were in whatever your version of slavery is doesn't mean that God isn't delivering you to your promised land. It means that sometimes he has to unwire you for slavery. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and wrap that up right now. I am almost, almost, almost done. Actually, I have the first episode completed of my new series on Yellowstone. So that will be coming out really soon. But Just remember that's only available to people that either support me on Patreon or subscribe to my Substack. So I will leave links to those in the show notes. Um, And I will see you next week.